12. The Old Indian Life Before I considered going to an Indian reservation, I had been interested in American Indians. I had read a number of studies, and my mind was well-stocked with the kind of knowledge most anthropologists supply. Moreover, in my student years, the great name at the University of California at Berkeley was Alfred Louis Kreber, some of whose work, I believe among the Crow tribe, went back to the turn of the century. I thus assumed that I had some knowledge of the Shoshones and Paiutes because my readings had included some studies of their life and culture. I found very quickly that anthropologists in general were held in disrespect by the Indians, including some of those who worked with them. A notable exception was Dr. Sven Liljeblad, a Swedish anthropologist who was for a time associated with the University of Idaho. Years later, I learned that a good friend and supporter of Chalcedon, Ezra Hawks, had, as a university regent, helped to further Dr. Lilia Blod's excellent linguistic studies. There was soon no question in my mind as to the intellectual caliber of the Indians. The harsh life they had lived meant death to the weak and the stupid. There were a few families of limited intelligence, and many with a high order of intelligence. We must remember, too, that over the generations, most Indians have merged into the, quote, white, unquote, American population, giving millions of Americans, quote, Indian blood, unquote. The elderly men, and a few women, who told me of the old days, resented both all idealization of Indian life as it had been, and all denigration of Indians. These older Indians despised both whites and younger Indians imbued with romantic ideas about their past, because they knew what the old life was like. A scholar's questions about what their life was like, what was its meaning, what was the character of its culture, reflected to them the abstract realm of the white man's university. I was told very bluntly the sum of Indian life, quote, staying alive, unquote. With primitive weapons, food gathering and hunting were hard. The threat of starvation was common. The coming of the white man's horse was a great help. The white man's knife was highly prized, too, and so on. On every continent, some peoples have found that, quote, staying alive, unquote, is their major occupation. Only as early technology developed did men have a way to expand their horizons beyond survival. In what is now the United States, most tribes found survival to be their central concern. Thus, to isolate and investigate the minutiae of Indian culture, such as their myths or artifacts, without giving attention to their urgent struggle to survive, will give us a warped knowledge and a distorted history. These elderly Indians' knowledge of what could be eaten and where to find it was very good. But such knowledge cannot supply quantity, nor success in hunting with very primitive weapons. I recall a long conversation with a naval officer. As part of specialized training for some particular kind of campaign, he was landed on an island with almost no knowledge of it, or whether it was inhabited or not, and expected to map the island in his mind. He had to be able to avoid detection and to feed himself. He had no more than, perhaps, a pocket knife. It was survival training, but it was also intelligence training. He had been taught what kind of foods or meats would require more energy to catch than they would supply. He had to keep track of the days he was there, a month, I think, and then be picked up without detection. The island was a small one in the Caribbean, not the South Pacific as he expected. His total, quote, culture, unquote, while on the island had one focus, staying alive, and he found himself eating things he would ordinarily have regarded as repulsive. This man had the advantage of a rigorous training course in survival. He had the background of centuries of Western culture and technology in his mind. Although he began without a comparable experience in his past, he had a family and academic and military training which gave him centuries of knowledge to draw upon. As I spoke with him, we saw the parallel to Indian life, and also saw that he had enjoyed an advantage. Indian life had been about staying alive. 
No one who creates a myth about the Indian past can understand or do justice to the Indian. The Britons encountered by Roman soldiers were on the tribal level comparable to the American Indians. They had not advanced. Unlike the Indians, this was not because they were placed on reservations, their past romanticized, and their children schooled in self-pity. They faced invasions, one after another, mass murders and rapes unlike anything that occurred in the Americas. After hard centuries, out of this turmoil emerged England, and then Great Britain, creating what until now has probably been the world's greatest civilization. The Romantics want the Indians to retire from history and return to a mythical past. The American Indians are a people with great potential, but the Romanticists are trying to turn them into a museum piece. There is a remarkable observation in Proverbs 12.10, quote, The tender mercies of the wicked are cruel, unquote. I believe with all my heart that it is cruelty to the Indians to hold that the mainstream of American life is not the place for them. To say that the Indian needs to be Indianized means that he should be cut off from our civilization. Shortly after World War II, on a trip east, I was discussing changes on the reservation. The old Indian wagons were giving way to automobiles. Electricity and radios were coming in. My comments were met with expressions of romantic regret. The Indians should stay with their horses and wagons. But the horse and wagon came from white Americans, I said. They were, quote, borrowed, unquote, and adopted technology. Why make the Indians stop there? Such objections make no sense to romantics. They see the world as a museum in which certain people, places, animals, and natural phenomena are to be frozen into a permanently sterile and unchanging state, with themselves possibly as the curators. Woodrow Wilson regretted the invention of the cheap automobile, the Ford Model T, it would, he thought, put the worker on a level with his, quote, superiors, unquote, intellectuals, like Wilson. A similar attitude is applied to the American Indian. It is a romantic elitism, and it is evil. The sad fact is that too many Indians have bought the myth. In my years among the Paiutes and Shoshones, many old men told me interesting stories of hardship and survivals. They were sad that their sons and grandsons had no interest in their experiences. They were more interested in comic books, or, if concerned with Indian affairs, ready to listen to traveling agitators who told tales of an Indian Eden destroyed by the white man. No Indian Eden existed. The white man did at times treat Indians harshly and dishonestly, but not always so. Certainly the Indian tribes were anything but chivalrous knights in their treatment of one another. It is time for some honesty.